This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. Like the tenant here, when I moved in here, he kept asking me if he wanted to, if I wanted to go grill with him. And I kept saying no, not that I wouldn't want to grill with someone or hang out with someone, but it just sets a bad precedent of we're too friendly. And maybe if something's going wrong in your life, then you're going to ask me for it. And I might feel worse, or you might feel like you can ask those things and sort of take advantage of me a little bit. You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's up, guys? I'm your host, Jonathan Farber. I hope you guys are well and healthy. For any first-time listeners, thank you guys for being here. I really appreciate it. The goal of this show is to explore ways to become financially free through real estate or to increase passive cash flow through real estate. A little bit about myself. I work in corporate America at a software company and my side hustle is real estate. I currently own eight units, a mix of small multifamily and short-term rentals, aka Airbnb. I've house hacked, bird, flipped, and as mentioned, short-term rentals to name a few strategies. I love to network, so hit me up on any platform, Facebook, LinkedIn, BiggerPockets, Instagram, or just search Jonathan Farber, real estate, and you should find me. Also, if you are not already in the exclusive Facebook group, this is where I post most and do a lot of behind the scenes content of sharing deals, strategies, and systems. See you there. This episode is sponsored by Infinite Road Destinations, the smartest short-term rental property management group I know, and the group that manages my properties. This is a company that's very close to my heart, run by two of the smartest, most attentive people I know, Claire Rosenberg and Alex Brashears. Claire and I first met when we worked together at NetApp, where she was a top performer and rose crazy fast in the company. And Alex is just one of the most active, genuine people I know in the real estate space. The two of them together bring a blended background of project management, software design, and extensive experience with automation tools and virtual assistants. Through these experiences, they optimize any property to deliver hands-off experience to owners while delivering the highest occupancy and highest daily rates possible. You guys know I would not recommend anything to anyone in this group that I do not fully endorse or think that is the absolute best product. And this company is that. And like I said before, this is the exact company and people that manage my Airbnbs. If you don't believe me, here are a few of the other tools and services that come along with the team. Listing optimization, guest support and approval, communication and reservations, key exchange and management, dynamic pricing, welcome kit creation, listing advertising and marketing, vendor management, including cleaners, maintenance, handymen, runners, and monthly property reports. To learn more, check out shorttermmadeeasy.com or email info at shorttermmadeeasy.com. And on the forum, just mention that you heard it here or mention my name. So give it a try. You have nothing to lose and they offer a satisfaction guarantee. And I assure you guys, you will not be disappointed. What's up, guys? Today, we have an awesome episode with Avery Heilbron. He is based in Boston, Massachusetts, and he is 26 years old, building his real estate business as a side hustle investor and uh, just got a great background. He's from Canada, came to the US to play college soccer. Now he is a data scientist, analyst, 26 years old, like I said. Uh, he has five units between a two family and a three family that he house hacked uh, two times and talked through his process of getting rid of his living expense, finding roommates, finding deals, finding money, and just a really cool story of how he's done um, a nice amount in a short period of time and on a really clear path to financial freedom. And I know that's something that a lot of you guys are after yourselves. And 
he did it in a way that really didn't knock down his his uh, quality of life too much and basically learned a lot of skills along the way, including like managing tenants and collecting rent and doing repairs, uh, finding deals, all these sorts of things. And he didn't have to spend a ton of his own money to do these deals, which is really cool. And uh, he has, actually has some Section 8 tenants. So that's the main learning of today's show. And we talk through if he would recommend Section 8 tenants, how he screens them, what he would do differently if he had a bad experience with Section 8 tenants. Um, but he's really in on Section 8 tenants and he would actually kind of have them be his only tenant going forward if he could. Uh, we talk a lot about that on the show, which is cool. And then today's tangible tip is I recommend everyone start a list today of your income streams. And it could just be one, it could be zero. And every quarter from here, I recommend just Googling or YouTubing different types of income streams and seeing which one catches your eye, which one you're interested in, which one you think you could be good at. There are so many different types that if you just try to add one income stream every quarter, which is totally doable, like I, right now, I think I have 13 income streams, but if you were to just count your income streams and try to add one a quarter, you would be amazed how quickly things start to compound. And then once you hit a point that you can't manage them anymore, you can just start outsourcing parts of it, or you could do that from the beginning, but it's just a great way to start thinking about, okay, I'm not so reliant on one income stream. I am going to start diversifying and making money in multiple ways so that if one goes away, it's not a big deal. So I highly recommend that guys just go on YouTube, go on Google and start searching top income streams in 2021 or side hustles. And you'll be amazed what you can find. And that's kind of inspired from Avery because he was looking for side hustle jobs when he first got started in his corporate job. And kind of that's how he stumbled into real estate, but he was doing things like um, popcorn ceiling, not popcorn ceiling. He was doing um, de-letting. He was going to houses and working with contractors on de-letting homes, but this also taught him about construction and rehab and things like that. So there's a lot of skills and little side hustles you can learn that will teach you multiple things in addition to making money. So I highly recommend checking those out. Awesome episode today with Avery Heilbron. Enjoy. All right, Avery, what is going on, man? Welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. How are you? Good. How are you? And, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. Yeah, man. Good. Um, no complaints. Just, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, acclimating in this little slightly ghetto setup here in Florida, but uh, we make it work and we'll see how that goes. Nomading around a little bit. Uh, but excited to dig into your story, man, because you are a young guy, 26 years old, you've done a good amount of deals and you are continuing to do deals and just kind of build towards a bigger financial independence and helping other people kind of get on the track or uh, out of their jobs potentially. So we'd just love to hear from you kind of from a high level, how you got into all this and then also from a high level where you're at with real estate and business today. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So I ended up out in Boston. So I'm originally from Vancouver, Canada, and I, I ended up out this way playing college sports and then just found a job in the area. Um, and as soon as I started work, I think like most people think, you know, it's Friday, cool, but then Monday's around the corner, but then there's 40 more years of that. Uh, and it's it's not really what I wanted to do. And then kind of luckily, I ended up finding a just at the bookstore. Um, it's called Retire on Real Estate. And it led me on to bigger pockets and just the power of investing in real estate and cash flow and, and all that good stuff that we all love. Um, so from there, read a few more books, started just networking a ton, going to all the meetups that I could. And um, Boston's a pretty expensive market. So it seemed like doing a house hack through the low down payments was the best option. Uh, and then, so I graduated in May, 2018. And then March, 2019, I 
I got my first duplex that I house hacked. Um, and then a year later I did the same thing. So I'm currently sitting in my three family house hack. Uh, and since then I've just been trying to help people, you know, with coaching or my YouTube channel, sharing that same information. Um, and I've been trying to start finding private money and partnerships so I can scale up a little bit more because obviously the owner occupied stuff is awesome and the low down payments are cool, but at a certain point, you got to start actually doing, I guess, not T-ball real estate investing, but the, the real thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool, man. Uh, and your, your place looks nice. So I'm curious to hear about the strategy, if it was the first deal you bought or, or maybe if you could just take us kind of behind the nuts and bolts of the first deal you bought, how you found it, how you financed it, um, how it worked out, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that one, um, I like I said, I'd been networking a bunch and I had found my real estate agent through some of those meetups. Uh, as well as other real estate agents and whatnot. And so it was on market when I went and saw it, um, but it didn't look like a great deal because the tenant upstairs was about 13 or $1,400 under market rent, which to some people sounds like a good opportunity to raise the rents, but obviously that can be a big increase and not going to work out very well. Probably an eviction on your hands, which in Massachusetts, the laws are not in your favor as a landlord, but so I passed on it and then there was a cash offer that came through and it was listed at 550. Um, and it was actually the least expensive multifamily in the area. Um, and then the cash offer came through at 535 about a couple of weeks later, and then they backed out. And because of all this networking, I knew the listing agent and he said, Hey, I know you're interested in this, um, housing and multifamily invest. So if it's yours, so I asked him about all of the tenants and stuff. And because the cash buyer wanted it to be delivered vacant, they were gone. So that worked out really well for me. And, and I actually got it under contract for 525 because that was my max pre-approval. Um, and the seller accepted because he was doing a 1031 exchange. So that worked out really well, easy negotiation because that's all I could afford. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. So, um, you was the property turnkey did it need any work i want to say turnkey did it, just for those that don't know maybe you could explain what that means yeah so turnkey basically has it sounds you can just turn the key and then you're all ready to go it's it's nice and done up you can rent it out or maybe it's already rented out to at market um, tenants but this building was very much not turnkey um it was pretty disgusting there were like pools of um, plastic pools of like gardens and dirt in the backyard and mouse poop everywhere. The, uh, photos for the listing had like bras hanging up and random towels and stuff everywhere. It smelled, it smelled very horrible. Uh, but that's why it was the lowest price place and there was good opportunity. And because it's an expensive market, you kind of have to buy something like that. If you're buying something turnkey, you can't, the numbers just don't work very well. Plus if you're buying something that's quote unquote, like a piece of crap. Um, there's a lot of room for you add opportunity. So I was excited about that. And I kind of just went in day one, no real knowledge of construction or renovation and just kind of got after it. Uh, definitely learned a lot. Just watched a ton of YouTube about how to, how to do stuff, but painted, did new floors and countertops, backsplash, all that fun stuff. And eventually the bathroom later on. So, so that worked out and, and actually simultaneously at a contractor do 
some work upstairs so that I could get it rented out to a tenant right away. So we kind of just also jumped into this because this I have more questions about like the funding of the deal. Um, at the time, were you or are you still working in a W2 job? Are you a full-time real estate investor? Like how, how does that work? Because then again, what, what I think a lot of people might be wondering is how uh, to fund these renovations. Yeah. So yeah, I, I realized I missed that part of your first question, but I financed it through the FHA loan. So I put three and a half percent down. And so it was around 18,000, something like that. And I had just been able to save up through my W2 job. And, and yes, I still, still work full time for my employer. Um, but I just had some savings throughout school and got a signing bonus and was just vigorously saving and basically just sitting inside renting library books, not spending money on anything so that I could save every penny that I had to get towards that down payment. And, and as for closing costs, I was able to wrap that into the loan, mm -hmm. which was obviously quite helpful. And because I was doing a lot of the work myself, um, I was just paying for materials. And then I had some budget left over for a contractor, which I kind of messed up on because I just chose the cheapest option. And I ended up being a faster renovator than he was with his partner. And we did the same amount of work, which, which is pretty funny, but good lessons there and not just picking the cheapest option. Mm -hmm. Okay. And a, a couple more questions, I guess, just down that path. You you mentioned the uh, FHA loan um, and you kind of, you described what that was. Was there any consideration for the uh, 203K FHA loan, the construction loan um, to pay for the cost of construction as well? Because again, like, I just think a lot of people listening to this might be wondering, that sounds great. I can come up with a down payment for a property, but I don't, how do I get the money for the rehab? And in your case, maybe you just saved up for it. Maybe you didn't want to deal with the hassle of that like loan product, which there is a ton of hassle with, but just curious if it, if it crossed your mind. Yeah. So it did come up a little bit. Um, some people had talked about it that I was networking with. And um, I guess it's just my real estate agent told me that there's a lot of hassle, like you were mentioning with um, lending requirements and being able to use specific contractors and it can take more time and stuff like that. So he just said, if you don't need to do it, I would shy away from it. Um, I've definitely heard a lot of people who have had a lot of success with it. Obviously it's um, a huge barrier to entry if you wanna find a place that needs value add, but you don't have the funds to add that value. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I basically just stayed away from it based on what my real estate agent had said. Yeah. I think we've only had one person on the show that did it and he said he would do it again, but he just said it was a brutal process that like, and he was very detail oriented, which I know a lot of people that come on the show are more in the visionary bucket and not the uh, integrator. So like that might be a very tough thing for people. Um, okay, cool, man. So, so how did the deal actually go? You closed on it. Was everything perfect after that? Were there any bumps in the road? Just, just take us through that. I, I just laughed because you said it was everything perfect. I don't think ever, anything is ever perfect for anyone in this world, but um, yeah, so it was 525 with the the closing credit. And so my mortgage was 3,307. Um, and like I said, I was renovating and then renovated upstairs. So I got a tenant in um, August 1st and I closed on March 15th. So I had a couple of months where I had to pay the mortgage because um, I didn't, so the upstairs was a four bedroom unit and the unit I moved into, it was a two bedroom and I moved in at the end of April. So it was just me living in this big house. And then my girlfriend moved in, uh, she was paying me about 400 bucks. And then we got a roommate, he was paying 800 bucks. And 
so it was a four bedroom upstairs and a majority of the people who are interested in renting were families with young children. And in Massachusetts, the lead paint laws are quite strict. Mm. So like 90% of the people who are interested in renting the place out were that um, cohort of people and I couldn't rent to them. So then I got the place deleted, like lead paint abatement. Mm-hmm. And that was only a couple of weeks into when I listed it. And then I got a deleted and then I got a tenant. Um, they were a section eight tenant. And because it was the middle of July, I wasn't in time for their inspection to be completed. So, or sorry, the middle of June. So I wasn't in time for July 1st to get them in, even though they wanted to move. So we had mm-hmm. to wait for August 1st. So the housing authority could do their inspection before they could move in. Can you take us through that? So, so I guess, what was the, the conclusion of that? Did, did the whole place get rented? Was it section eight? Was it regular tenants? Like you're in one unit and it sounds like you're with your girlfriend in your unit. What's the status of the other units currently? Um, so at that time, while I was doing the house hacking and living there, my girlfriend, uh, was paying the 400, the roommate was 800, the section eight tenants were upstairs paying 2,400, which about 90% of it was paid by the government. And the rest of the 10% is um, paid by the tenant. Mm-hmm. So I was getting 3,600 with the $3,307 mortgage, which was pretty sweet. That's exactly what I wanted to do. And, and to make it work in the expensive market, um, you know, if I didn't have my girlfriend or the roommate, it wouldn't have been as sweet of a deal, but those are the kind of things that you have to do. And obviously grateful that my girlfriend was willing to live with a roommate. Um, so that worked out well. And, and now, uh, I refinanced March of last year so that I could reuse the FHA loan again. And because interest rates were lower and I had more equity, I went down to a 2850 mortgage payment, which is obviously mm-hmm. a big savings. And then I was able to increase the section eight rent to from 2,400 to 2880. Uh, and I only requested 2,600, but section eight is kind of interesting in that they do their own comparable rental analysis and it's just based off of bedrooms and basically nothing else. Hmm. And so they're just, they just said, here you go. Here's 2,880. Don't bother us basically for a couple of years. Um, Mm -hmm. this is a good amount of rent. So, so that's completely covering the mortgage. And then now the two bedroom is rented out at 1,800. Can you just talk to the process of section eight a little bit, like, like maybe a, a starter kit conversation or kind of what your general experience has been? Um, I've never done it. Uh, we've had deals we've looked at that had it, um, but I don't think we've ever had anyone on the show that did section eight deals. So if you could just kind of give us a, an overview of your experience with it, if you would do it again, if you recommend it for other people or maybe some things to consider if you're, if you're going to take it on. Yeah. So I love section eight. If every single one of my tents can be section eight, I I would do that. Um, personally, they're just, there's a lot of negativity around section eight. People think that the people are not going to be respect for good tents, but it's the same way of screening any tenants They're They could be bad or they could be good. Just depends on the situation. But as far as getting started, people will ask me, how do I get a section eight renter to my unit? And the answer is there's no real you can't just say this is a section eight unit. You basically just have to write in your listing that we accept a voucher or I accept a voucher and section eight puts out what they will accept or how much money they will pay each bedroom type in each city. So if you just listed that value, um, then it also is a, a good indicator that you'd be willing to take section eight tenants and they basically come to you. And if there's enough demand for that area for those type of tenants, which there usually is and 
most places in an expensive city or in a big city, um, then that's how you get it in. And once you have them in, like I said, there's an inspection process. So I actually had to have the city inspect the property and then had to have the housing authority inspect the property. So each tenant has their own housing authority that they work with, which is based out of a certain town who holds that voucher. And that's how you get the money and they pay you direct deposit on the first, which is pretty sweet. Um, and, and so there are a couple of hoops, but, but once it's all said and done, it's pretty easy. And I think they do an inspection every two or three years, uh, just to make sure the place is habitable. And by habitable, I just mean there's enough electric outlets and the bathroom is usable and like the appliances are working and stuff like that so that they know what they're paying for. What do you think people get wrong with Section 8? Or why do you think they're they're so concerned about it? Because it sounds like you've had a positive experience with it the whole time. Yeah, I think there's just a bit of a negative connotation towards them maybe not making their own money or not having enough money. So people just sometimes assume that people who don't have money are going to be bad or trash the place. But obviously, I've had a very different experience. And I think it's because to get that voucher is a very difficult process. Some people take years to get it um, and it, you can lose it. So if you're not a good tenant or something is going wrong, they can revoke your voucher status and they worked really hard to get it. So if you're losing it and you actually really need the funds in order to live, cause you have, you know, my tenants, a, a single mom with four kids and she works her ass off. Like, mm. so she, she really does need the funds in order to support her family. Um, and if she didn't have that, it would, it would be a tough. So I think that's why they're so respectful and such nice people that, that they know that they can lose those funds. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. So do you think uh, just, this is, this is kind of more of an overarching question. Do you think you're going to try to do more section eight or if it just happens, it happens? Yeah, I think it depends on the unit type. And if it happens, it happens a little bit. I, if I have a three or four bedroom, uh, I think I would like section eight because those can take a little bit longer to rent out potentially than like a two bedroom. Um, just by the way of how the market works, I guess. And if I can have a section eight tenant, they're typically in there for many, many years and you don't have to worry about it. And I've gone through the process of increasing rents and it was super easy. And like I said, their rental analysis is purely based on bedrooms it doesn't even matter if there's two bathrooms in the place it's just bedrooms uh so there's a lot of value add that that you can have there without actually really adding any value hmm. yeah that's really cool um okay is there anything else on that first so that deal was a duplex correct mm. is there anything else on that duplex that is worth noting or or any interesting stories you know worth talking about before we go to the the next deal uh Probably the only thing was, like I said, I did the de-letting. Um, and because oh, yeah. of that, I'm, I'm a very curious person. I ask a lot of questions. So because of that, I was talking to the guy who was doing the de-letting and I ended up starting to, like I got my license and I worked for him and I did that as a side hustle for about a year. Huh. It was it was kind of the worst side hustle I've ever done. Um, <laughs> and it was not very clean. And you know, you're wearing a mask and it's sweaty and you're just scraping paint off of door jams and windows and stuff. But that was... That was my Saturday for like six to nine months. <laughs> so actually, like, it's interesting you say that. And is that just the, like, what is the process of that actually? Like for anyone that's curious, because when I think of deletting, I almost think of like the process of removing popcorn ceilings and like, maybe mm -hmm. they're similar, maybe they're not at all. And like, I just know that 
can be a tough job. Like I've had it done in a couple of properties and it was better in some than others, but like, what, what does that even mean? How do you get your property deleted? Yeah. So I think it also definitely depends on the state you're in. Like I said, Massachusetts has really strict laws. Technically when you close on a property, you're supposed to get it deleted within 90 days. Uh, I think no one does that, but that's technically the law that no one really knows. Um, but it's basically just the windowsills, the door, like the edges of the doors, the door jams, stair treads, and any loose paint. Um, so anything outside of that is not really a big deal. And it's typically anything that's under, I think it's four or five feet, just so that children couldn't, you know, like suck the windowsill that has lead paint on it or something like that. Mm. Uh, but when you actually de-lead a unit, there still is lead paint that exists within the unit because the paint could be on other surfaces that aren't the ones that I, that I mentioned. Um, but you're just lead safe or lead compliant and you can fall out of compliance technically at any point. And so for example, if one of the kids in my four bedroom unit went to their grandma's house and got lead poisoning there, and then they came back to the unit and I hadn't been keeping up with the lead paint compliance, like there was now loose paint where there was noted lead paint before then I could get, sued or i'd have to pay for their hospital bills and all this stuff hmm. so okay. it's, it's definitely a point of contention especially in massachusetts so where i was going with that was like you, you seem just like a very hungry ambitious person and like picking up side hustles or trying to obviously invest in real estate and you have a job and you played sports growing up so you seem you know competitive in, in a lot of what you do but what is it about for you? Like, like what is, I mean, not to put you on the spot, like not to rattle off your exact goals, but like, is the point of this for you to get financial freedom by a certain age? Do you want to build a huge business and X number of employees and dollars? Like, you know, because when I hear people say that they're, they're working on different income streams and side hustles, you know, it could mean a lot of different things. So what's, what's the purpose of all this for you? Yeah. So obviously financial freedom is cool. It would be nice to not work at my job, but, or I think nice to not have nice to have the option to not have to work. I don't mind my work at all. So that's why I keep doing it. And it's not particularly difficult to continue doing the side hustles in real estate investing while I have it. It's not like I'm working in investment banking or I'm working hundred hours a week. It's a pretty standard 40 hour a week job. But, um, I think the thing I value more than anything is my time and my relationships. So just being able to spend as much time with, my family and the people that I love is definitely part of it, which financial freedom plays a big role in. And like I mentioned, I'm from Vancouver, Canada, and um, my brother actually lives out in Boston, but my family's still on the West Coast. So it would be nice to be able to visit them for a week or something and travel wherever I wanted to, uh, mm -hmm. while still not having to worry about where I'm getting funding for my life. Uh, so, so that's really the big goal. And in terms of how much money that means. Uh, I don't live a very lavish lifestyle, so I don't care too much about having money, but I don't, I don't care about spending money on myself, but whoever, you know, is part of my life, relationships, family, whatever, I don't want them to have to worry about it. And I, so I can handle it. Got it. Love that answer. That's cool, man. I think that'll, that'll relate with a lot of people listening. So we'd love to just hear about the next deal. So you do the, the, duplex. And then mm -hmm. it, like for most people that either do a house hack or an FHA, 
there's that year long waiting period and then they are ready to go for the next one. So just if you could take us through kind of the progression and ramp into the second one of how you started looking for it, what you were looking for, how you got funding, uh, and then, and then just kind of, we'll dig into the deal. Sure. Yeah. So that one, like I said, I'm sitting and it's a three family, uh, in the same town about a mile away from my duplex, which is pretty awesome. I like that a lot. Uh, and I, I was able to, uh, close in May of last year. So just thinking about timeline for closing usually takes about 30 days when I was searching for houses, it was right in the midst of when everyone was freaking out, sitting at home. And so that there was just a lot less demand um, and buyers out there. So I saw that it is a good opportunity to go look for housing because um, FHA buyers are typically the least enticing buyers to a seller because you're putting the least amount of money down. Um, you have to get all the financing. There are other hoops you have to go through. And because, so I was able to use the FHA again, because I refinanced into a conventional loan with my duplex. Um, and because no one else seemed to really be looking, I was only really competing with myself on the offer on this house. And this house was interesting because the seller had, I think listed it himself, but his friend was an attorney. So it was technically listed by the attorney and he listed it for probably 75,000 more than it was worth and no one was interested and and he went down a little bit so it was listed at 800 it had eventually he went down to 725 and i offered 678 with an $8000 closing credit uh, and again with ha loan so it was about a $4000 down payment and and the way i was able to get that money was just because i was living for free not living a lavish lifestyle like vigorously saving Mm -hmm. So I was just able to have that money saved up from the year of living in the duplex because, you know, before I was house hacking, I was paying $1,100 to $1,200 in rent um, and getting all that money back. Plus what I was already saving was a pretty significant savings. Um, and so because of that, I was able to get the three family and it wasn't in as bad a shape. I guess people would call it a fixer upper. I wouldn't, but you know, all the things behind me, the the nice paint and the faucet and subway tile. I did all that stuff with my girlfriend to make it a lot nicer uh, mm. than it was, but it was already in pretty good shape compared to the other one. Okay. Um, so I guess you, you saved up the money and, and like we're huge advocates of that. I mean, I house hacked three times and it's basically what I think for anyone listening, the absolute quickest way to probable financial freedom, you know, depending on what lifestyle you want to live and what your willingness to trade things off is. But it's a clear path. Like that's what I loved about it, that if you do it X mm -hmm. number of times, like you don't have to be smart, you don't have to be skilled, you don't have to be like, it's just a very clear cut path. Not to say you aren't like clearly, you know, smart, skilled, athletic, you know, good looking, all these things. And uh, I'm just kidding. And basically, you know, like, it's just tough that there's a lot of other paths. And like, I remember I used to think like, oh, I need to start an app or I need to start a business. And I was like, I'm not creative. I don't, I don't, there's no path on some of those routes and you have to like navigate all these things, but this is very clear cut. If you just do it and you don't spend tons of money, you can achieve something that a lot of people can't. So uh, it just, it's just a really cool concept. So, okay. You, you bought the deal three and a half percent down again, you saved up um was it were there tenants in the in the units when you bought it were they vacant how much work was needed on the property to get it rental ready yeah so this one was actually tenanted and that was pretty good because i was able to get some income right away uh the 
upstairs they had just moved in like a month before I closed uh I wasn't totally sure how the guy that I bought it from handled screening the tenants because he definitely as the owner it was funny his his unit was the least the worst condition and it smelled really bad he was definitely smoking weed in here all the time uh but that that one was tenanted as well as the other unit so uh, and they were at about market rent maybe a little bit lower so there was no real worry with getting them rented out um and it made the numbers work and everything made sense and uh since then the unit i'm in is a one bedroom so no longer have the roommate but still have the girlfriend helping out with the rent uh so that mortgage is about 3900 and then upstairs is 2000 the studio apartment was 1500 which i increased to 1550 mm. recently and then the girlfriend's at 400 um, in terms of getting rent ready it was more just having us move in um you know i added some cabinets actually on the other side you can't see it but did that painted uh did the backsplash faucet and stuff and then my tenant in the studio so it's kind of like a bi-level uh, first unit. So I'm in the back, he's in the front. And while he was away on vacation for a week, I just did the same thing quickly in his unit because I thought he was going to move out early. But since I did this, I think he wanted to continue living there. But then I was, I increased his rent and got him on a better lease and he's due up again in June. So I'll, I'll probably be able to increase his rent a little bit again. That's cool. Any, any learnings being a first time landlord that you kind of wish you would have known or, or would tell yourself again, starting out the second deal or kind of the whole thing in process. You know, you hear a lot of times people say like, Oh, uh, uh, never say you're the owner never say you're the property manager, kind of give it off to someone else, anything like that, or just learnings that you wish you would have known. Yeah. And that thing where you say, Oh, I'm not the owner. I'm just the property manager. I wanted to do that, but because of on my first deal with the section eight, it said I was the owner in the contract, how they do it. So I couldn't go ahead and do that. She obviously knew I was the owner, but, um, I think the best advice that I have and something that I've always have done, um, is just not being too friendly, like make sure that you're very respectful. And I think I treat the relationships of my tenants similarly to how you might treat a relationship with a coworker who you're just kind of asking, how was your weekend or something like that? Like, Hey, how are you doing? I'm not like the tenant here. When I moved in here, he kept asking me if he wanted to, if I wanted to go grill with him. And I kept saying, no, not that I wouldn't want to grill with someone or hang out with someone, but it just sets a bad precedent of we're too friendly and, maybe if something's going wrong in your life, then you're going to ask me for it and I might feel worse or you might feel like you can ask those things and sort of take advantage of me a little bit. Um, so I just make sure that I, not professional, but just friendly and respectful, not too friendly, but. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That makes sense. That's cool. That's um a good tip. Cause, cause I've definitely had that before. And also sometimes you can't use that. Oh, my partner, my manager, or I don't own this thing or whatever. Like they know, and you have to come up with something that's just like not come up with. You just can't use that. And you have to just develop a relationship in another way. And I've definitely had the same thing, even where they're like adding on Facebook or like, Oh, like let's get beers or whatever. And I'm like, nah, I can't. Like, I'm sorry. Just like, this is, it, it just gets weird. Like, you know, it's just unfortunate. Yeah. Like, but it just, it, it's cool to, that you just knew that early on. Um, so that's, that's really cool, man. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask about construction or just like repairs, 
Um, you mentioned that you did a lot of this stuff yourself. Like how handy are you? And then do you recommend people get handy or get to a certain level of like do it themselves mentality? Or, or do you think like if you could do it again, you'd, you'd still pay to have a lot of it done or going forward, you'll pay to have a lot of it done? Yeah. So in terms of how handy am I, I'm decently handy now. How handy was I when I first started? I think the most handy thing I had done was hanging up a poster in my dorm room uh, before I bought my first property. I've just spent hours and hours watching YouTube videos, figuring that stuff out. Um, while starting out though, I think it was really positive for me to be able to do the stuff myself. Like I said, just for saving money, probably have total saved like $25,000 of paying contractors from mm. both of the places, maybe more. Um, so that's obviously been good while I'm starting out. I would love to never do anything again. I mean, I, I enjoy, I enjoy the renovations and I want to keep doing some owner occupied investing, like live in flips or more house hacks. But if I'm buying like a actual investment property, I guess, if you want to call it that, like a burr or something, I don't want to be the one renovating it. I, I would want a professional going through and doing it quicker just so you can start scaling up and actually having those things work for you, valuing your time and um, working on those high dollar tasks, like finding deals, not just doing the work. But if, if I'm living here and I'm right here and you know, my tenant is saying, Hey, the faucet is leaking and I can just walk upstairs and fix it and save 200 bucks rather than calling someone, then I'm going to do that. So yeah, I hear that hundred percent. There's, it's so tough because there are some things that it's like, even now I get into it outsourcing that it's, it's a small thing that between the time and energy of having to coordinate like someone else coming and scheduling and then paying that person, like it's probably not a good use of the time, even though I can't stand doing anything like that. I don't feel is a good use of my time, but there are a lot of gray area things that just between like the potential mistakes that could happen and the compounding mm -hmm. of it, that it's, it's almost worth just doing yourself, you know, especially for a one-time thing that doesn't happen often um, or just for the cost, you know, it's, it's a, a tricky thing, but it seems like, you know, if there are certain things that you can do, you, uh, you just do them yourself. So that's cool. I mean, so would you call yourself a handy person or you've developed that? Uh, definitely have developed it. And I have a lot of friends who are in a similar scenario. Uh, I have one friend who's super handy. So, you know, we'll help each other out and I'll text them like, Hey, what do I do here? But I, I, in terms of the do it yourself stuff, there is one thing that I will say, I don't touch anything to do with gas or the electric panel. Mm. Those are my two things. And mostly, well, for my safety two for any liability. So if I, you know, hooked up a gas stove or something and there was an issue or a leak or whatever, uh, and there's a fire like that is a huge liability on me. So I'm going to make sure a professional does that kind of stuff or like an electrical panel. If I'm wiring something incorrectly or I hurt myself, cause that stuff can be dangerous, especially just figuring it out based off of watching YouTube. Uh, you probably don't want to be doing that, but you know, smaller things that I can handle, uh, or feel good about, I go ahead and do. And, and also with cer certain maintenance requests. I will still call a handyman or have someone else do it sometimes. It just depends on what I'm doing or how I'm feeling or how quickly I can do it versus them. I'm always kind of balancing out what's the cost of that request or that maintenance and how much do I value my hour. Um, and if I value my hour less than the cost, then I'll go do it. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Um, so anything else you want to talk about that, that like 
coming up or deals you're working on or, or like where your head is at kind of coming out of COVID and, you know, you have five units under your belt. Um, you're still just getting started. Um, like where, where are you thinking you're going to be in the next year or two years or, or, you know, like future, bigger future too. Yeah. Well, shameless plug for my YouTube channel. Uh, I'm trying to get that monetized. So people want to subscribe, that would be helpful. Uh, but other than that, as an income source, I am trying to get involved with private money and uh, partnerships, potential equity partnerships. And actually at one point, I, th I guess I skipped over this last January, I did have a 23 unit under contract that I was attempting to syndicate with some partners. Um, and I backed out of that partnership for various reasons, as well as the deal, because they had just lied a lot about the amount of rents they were receiving. So mm -hmm. at one point I really wanted to, you know, syndicate mid-size apartment buildings and potentially larger, but, uh, I like the smaller multifamily and maybe eventually can do some like 12 to 20 unit kind of stuff. But I really am just networking a bunch, actually trying to forge good relationships and partnerships because that first partnership that I had, I definitely rushed into it because the idea of buying a 23 unit just sounded really cool. And I wanted to think more about, well, how is this going to affect my life? How does this work towards my goals? Do I actually want to have a $2 million loan with these people? You know, all of those things. So I've, I've started to think about that more and actually be a bit slower and more intentional about finding those partnerships. But um, yeah, I think that's a really important way if, if you want to grow just private money partnerships. Um, I don't feel great about using hard money just because of the interest rates. So I'd like to eventually be my own bank and tap into the equity of, of the two properties I have here in Boston, because there's so much potential for equity gains um, and just, you know, use cash out refinance or a home equity line of credit and maybe take that to a less expensive market so I can buy stuff for, for cash. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's awesome, man. Um, any, any last like best practices or, or like tips, tricks, hacks, things that you use or do, or kind of just would tell a beginner, um, you can't tell them to get started. That one is way overused, but, um, just like tangible stuff that, that could maybe help them in their day-to-day -day investing journey. Yeah. So when a lot of people are starting, they get really excited uh, and read a bunch of books and listen to a bunch of podcasts, which is obviously great. But I think the thing that they mess up on when they're getting started out and what leads them to sort of stopping from starting out would be that they don't take focused action. So you hear about, oh, I'm going to start wholesaling to get some money or Brandon Turner's talking about burr every five seconds. So I better try that. Oh, this guy said house hacking. Oh, maybe I should buy out of state or you know, this works. So you got to kind of actually just pick your one strategy and just do everything you can to make sure that happens and just take focused action to actually get that thing to happen. Because if you want it, it, it will happen if, if you really want it bad enough. But if you're thinking about all these other things all the time, you're, you're never going to get anywhere and you're going to learn some cool stuff by listening and reading, but it's not going to amount to anything. Got it. Okay. Any, any favorite tools you use on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, I really like cozy. I know a lot of people talk about rent ready. What is cozy? No, what's rent ready? Oh, okay. Um, so cozy is like a good software for listing your apartments, handling maintenance requests, um, receiving rents. And, um, so it's all online. Um, if you're collecting rent in person, that's just going to be bad. So no matter what you should collect rent online, but 
it just allows you to connect your tenant's bank account to your bank account and the money just transfers that way. They can set up automatic payments. If they want to do maintenance requests that way, you can list your apartment through those services. Rent ready is pretty similar, but there's a price involved. And I think it also has some accounting software, uh, but I can't justify paying for something like that right now. You know, if I have more units, it would probably make more sense. So I use that a lot and um, just Google Excel sheets um, for handling my expenses. And again, I, I could probably use a better software, but I just, I don't really want to or need to at this point. Cool, man. What is the best way for people to find you or get connected, social media, all that? Yeah, so on Instagram, I'm underscore Avery Heilbron. So just my name, same with TikTok. And then YouTube, Avery Heilbron, Bigger Pockets, same thing, or LinkedIn, really, really anywhere. Any of those things will, will work pretty well. I'm pretty active on, on a lot of those platforms. Okay. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, it's cool to see that someone is house hacking and adding units in an expensive market and just kind of showing people that it can be done. Like you don't have to live in the middle of the country. You don't have to live in a very low price market. You can still add units and progress towards your goals when you live in any city. So uh, Avery, thank you for coming on, man. And best of luck in 2021. Yeah, thanks. And, and thanks for having me. It was, a, it was a fun conversation. You got it. Hey, you millennial millionaire. Are you looking for help getting to the next level in real estate? Are you looking for accountability and strategy to achieve your goals? If so, Jonathan is now taking on one-on-one -on -one students and opening a few spots in his private mastermind. It's affordable and welcome to everyone. If you had any questions or think you may need a boost, send Jonathan a message on Facebook or email at johnjfarber at outlook.com. 